Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Daniel Gospoderic. After suffering a traumatic brain injury in 2009, Daniel was inspired to pursue his current career as a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Colorado. He works full-time in a psychiatric hospital and part-time in private practice. He works with mental health and recovery and provides a one-on-one and couples therapy in his private practice for those who experience mental illness and trauma. We discuss his traumatic brain injury experience and how it's shaped his current approach to mental health and recovery. He offers great insights into mental health and the mind-body connection. And with that, let's welcome Daniel. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I appreciate just being here and being able to chat with you. Yeah. So in 2009, you had a traumatic brain injury. Um, can you go into that a little bit and how that led you to where you are today and yeah. what you've been doing since then? Yeah, for sure. So um, I kind of give a highlight and then we can go back and kind of get a little more specific in terms of recovery and like what that was like and in pieces, yeah. pieces of the, of that nature. So yes, July, 2009 um, was in a severe auto automobile accident and sustained a traumatic brain injury that nearly killed me. Um, from that kind of experience working with all of the medical professionals, I was kind of you know, directed to this helping profession before the TBI. Didn't really know where I was going with my life, military, business degree. But after that TBI, it was like, okay, somewhere here. I just didn't know where. Then I actually had a conversation with my sister, who's a social worker as well. Um, and she was like, check this, hmm. check this profession out. And I did. And I, I checked out the the curriculum and I was like, yeah, I think this would be cool. Graduated with my undergrad in social work um, in 2015, um, January 2015, and started working for a year or two and then figured out I needed to go get my master's before, before um I could really do what I want to do, the one-on-one therapy, the one-on-one support, the family support, things of that nature, kind of work in those capacities of hospitals or the or the VA. And then in 2016, I started my master's program. And then since then, I've been working on, you know, obtaining my full licensure as a licensed clinical social worker, currently work in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, and then also have my own private practice on the side where we focus a lot on mental illness, um, heavily focus on trauma, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and then CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as uh, traumatic brain injuries. Okay. What, uh, can you go into the specifics on what happened with the accident? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was just a Tuesday evening. My childhood neighbor was driving the, driving the vehicle. And we were actually slowing down for a stop sign in a rural area. And the two right tires went off the road. And then there was an overcorrection. And then we were in the oncoming lane. There was another overcorrection. And then we rolled four times. So I think my, if my memory serves me correctly, it was two times. We rolled two times on the road, one time in a ditch, and then once into a field. Or it was three times on the road and then once off that into the field i can't remember correctly but so from there i was i was unconscious so i don't remember anything whatsoever um 
if it wasn't for the driver and him locating our cell phones, calling EMS, calling also calling his mom, who was a nurse, and her speaking with the EMS people because we were in a rural, a more rural area, and she essentially told them, if I have a traumatic brain injury or just head injury, that getting me to a rural hospital without having the correct medical um, care could delay in medical interventions and I could die. So they opted to take me right to a higher trauma level one from her conversation with them. So I yeah. definitely owe my life to, to those two people. Did you have to get airlifted or anything? I did not. They used the jaws of life. Um, her, you know, I was unconscious. So I don't remember anything, but I was told that they used the jaws of life. And, and no, that was kind of one of the running jokes. Cause it's interesting when you go through these dark places, sometimes you find humor and you can laugh about stuff. And it's like, I was right there. Like, couldn't I have gotten, couldn't I have gotten the flight for life, you know? Um, but no, it was yeah. an ambulance ride, um, to the hospital. And then from there I needed to have a craniotomy or they removed part of my skull to stop the bleeding. And then um, I had a fractured skull. My left lung was collapsed. And then I also sustained a stroke in my left prefrontal cortex or my left prefrontal lobe. Okay. Um, yeah, I remember seeing on your site that uh, you said you had 17 months of therapy. Yeah. Was that speech therapy, physical therapy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so. I did 10 days in the ICU, seven days inpatient rehab. Inpatient rehab is where physical therapy, occupational therapy, and then uh, speech and massage therapy kind of commenced. After seven days of inpatient, I did another three months of physical therapy outpatient, so one to three times a week. And then I did um, speech therapy for 17 months afterwards. So anywhere from, from one to three sessions. Uh, a week. Okay. Yeah. Did so you had like an aphasia? Did you have an aphasia or anything like that from the stroke? So that was one of their concerns with the area of because I had the area that I had the bleed in was my left temporal region, which is a huge language center of the brain. So they thought maybe I would have to relearn how to talk, but I was able to maintain that. It, the speech therapy was heavily focused on concentration, focus, multitasking, switching between tasks, um, and then also vocabulary around certain, I forget what they're called now. <laughs> so, um, but it's the words that sound similar. So like there, there, here, here, mm. right? And gotcha. I remember specifically the speech therapist was like, tell me all the words that are like that, that you can think of. And I could only think of like four at the time. And I was like, mm. I know that there are more. I just don't, I just can't recall them. Um, so really, really kind of reconnecting a lot of those neural networks. And then okay. being able to maintain focus in addition to the high level of fatigue that I experienced from, from the car accident and the brain surgery. Because I was sleeping probably close to, I want to say, 14 to 16 hours a day. So I was so oh, wow. tired. 
Yeah. Was it along the recovery path that you decided to make your career change or was it after fully recovering? So I think I had the conversation with my sister a few months, a few months after the accident. And I think the conversation actually stemmed and I could be, I could be, I could be misspeaking, but I feel like one of the reasons I asked about where she was and what she was doing in school was a related to the helping profession, but also she was one of the people that stayed at home with me because I needed to be supervised for a number of weeks after the accident for seizures and stuff like that. And she was able to move around her school schedule and like do some stuff online, go to school, right? And I was like, wow, that's so flexible. Like they're so understanding. <laughs> and that was that was kind of one of the pieces. Yeah. And now I'm into this social work profession. And I'm like, wow, like we operate in the gray zone. Like we are we have to be fluid yeah. in the roles. We have to be fluid with our our therapeutic interventions um, to meet people where they're at, to just support people in recovery. So I was like, it kind of makes sense that that would that would be embodied in their curriculum. Yeah. So how has your experience with that uh, traumatic brain injury shaped your approach to the um, therapy and your connection to your clients? Yeah, I I definitely think there's a level of empathy in terms of recovery. Uh, recovery looks so different for every person and for everything that we have challenges with it could be addiction could be mental health could be trauma and and deep traumatic brain injuries whatever grief and loss right and i think having and sitting with somebody that maybe doesn't have the exact experience but has a walked process of experiencing being knocked down like challenged to the core in terms of identity in terms of sense of self grief and loss right there's a lot of things that i i still can't do that i used to do right a lot of things i missed my senior year of high school because friends were doing x and i was sleeping so there are those pieces in terms of anxiety right fatigue that people can relate to Maybe they're not exactly, you know, 100% the same, but I think it gives that shared empathy. Are you, so do you still have more fatigue than the average person, like, currently? No, I would say that my fatigue probably lifted, I really like my sophomore year of college, so that would have been, like, 20, okay. 2012, so about two and a half years, like, two and a half years afterwards. It was, yeah. So that made, I mean, I'd imagine that made college fairly hard your first little bit, right? Like, yeah, um, I mean, college students are known for not getting much sleep anyway. Right. So, so my accident was going into my senior year of high school. And one of the things I am fairly certain it was a doctor or doctors that told me I probably wouldn't graduate with my high school, my high school class that I started it with. And I told them, no, I would. And I did. I I met the minimum credits, um, but we operated on a block schedule um, for our high school. So we only had four classes a day. They were hour and 20-ish minutes each. 
So for the first semester back for high school, I would go to two classes and then come home essentially for the first semester and just sleep for one to three hours um, because I was just so exhausted. And then second semester, I was able to go a full day and then do a half day. So it was, it, it was, it was, the fatigue was there and it will run your life if you're not continually kind of like pressing those boundaries and, and pushing yourself. Right. And I think that's where, that's what recovery is. That's what therapy is, is we don't grow in our comfort zones and supporting people yeah. through that. Right. Like it's hard. And right. Like what's the other side of this conversation? Yeah. Um, it, it seems like you'd be able to relate to a lot of different mental things too. Like I know with depression, fatigue is a big thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you kind of have to force yourself to get through those moments because I mean, you have a life that you want to live, you have goals and stuff like that, even though you have depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I'd imagine you can relate pretty well to people that have that, even if you maybe haven't had depression yourself. Yeah. And I, I think it's also this interesting balance of like, yes, I have this lived experience and I don't always bring it into the therapy room. Like I don't tell every client that I have a traumatic brain injury yeah. and they can read it on my site. Right. That's one thing. But I really, I really try to use it sparingly when somebody's appears to be really stuck. Right. Okay. And, and to yeah. say like, we are going to be in these adverse situations many times in life. Adversity will strike unexpectedly. Right. And how do we look at it and hold it and continue with our values, continue healing, yeah. whatever healing or recovery looks like. Yeah. How do you feel like your experience with traumatic brain injury has shaped your perspective on the mind-body connection when it comes to mental health? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big answer. So I'll start just kind of chipping away. I don't think our society teaches a lot of mind-body connection work. School, um, even even to some degree sports i think sports are very very incredible for shaping character shaping identity shaping our values and it's not just all about mindset mindset's a huge piece but we also need to be able to tune into our body to say is there something going on right what is our nervous system telling us are we hyper regulated are we hypo hypo regulated right or hyper hypo aroused um it just depends not to bash sports. I think they're great. They do. Yeah. But I think just integrating some of those pieces could help just people be a little more attuned to not only themselves, but also maybe what other people might be feeling. And my specific TBI, right, in this journey of mind-body connection, I didn't have a lot before that. Yeah. And it wasn't until I started therapy. It wasn't until, like, I, I was in speech therapy and I was feeling this frustration of this inability to recall words that I knew, but I couldn't remember, right? Or the yeah. the challenges I had falling asleep at night because my mind would just race 
and I would feel that frustration and anger, right? So it was almost like it was taught to me through the recovery process of experience, as well as in therapy itself or counseling. Yeah. When you mentioned anger, what was your anger at specifically? Yeah, that's a good question. So anger, irritability, impulsivity are pretty common with most with a lot of TBIs. A lot of it was directed at like annoyances. Mm. Okay, like you just spent five minutes telling me something when you could like said it in one sentence, right? Or I remember getting really upset at my dad. Um, He was a farmer, and he would wake up early, do dishes at 4am. But I could like, I was almost like hypersensitive to hearing things. And I could hear the dishes clanging at four, and I couldn't sleep through it. So I would get angry at that, right? Yeah. And and it was just like those things. And it's another hall, hallmark of TBI is, is not having a filter on like what you're saying. And I think yeah. not having a filter and having that zero to 100 challenge with impulsivity and anger just kind of mesh to that perfect storm that your support system, they give a lot and they take a lot. In, in terms of TBI recovery, because they're around you so much. Yeah. Uh, what are some common misconceptions um, about traumatic brain injuries that you've encountered, and how do you address those? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest ones are those invisible scars or wounds, even though you appear externally okay. Right, and, you know, people saying you look you look great and it's like but i don't feel great like my head is like looking through a fog right now and like if you asked me to do this algebra problem or to write an essay i would probably take me a week to do it right so i think i think people we 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 look at things on on the surface and we make assumptions that people are doing better maybe better than what they are doing right and that has been the the biggest one that I've ran into through my recovery process, not not so much anymore, but especially at the beginning, family members, friends, right? So that was, that's probably one of the biggest ones that we just don't know what's going on in terms of somebody's head, in terms of somebody's body, right? We don't, we can't see those invisible scars. That's why, I mean, that's part of the reason there's therapy is to work on those things, right? But again, like our society also needs to have an awareness that it's okay to ask for help, that it's okay to, you know, sit down and chat about these things. Yeah. Um, you mentioned other people not being able to know what's going on in your head, the scars that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, can an individual who's gone through something like that really identify what's going on in their own head and, and the scars that are present in the the trauma that's really present there, can they recognize that without external help? Say that one more time. I'm not, am I looking at it, looking at that at other people or in myself? Confused. Yeah. So you mentioned it with other people not being able to see what's going on in your head. Are you able to really figure out what's going on in your own head without therapy and help Mm, when you've gone through something like that? I don't think I had the cognitive capacity right after the accident to figure it out. 
Like my brain okay. was literally healing. Right. Yeah. And until that brain heals. And even if there's scar tissue, right? Like things are murky. And then we need to look at like neuro, uh, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, and kind of learn different ways of doing things, compository means to navigate this world. But I don't think for probably the first like maybe five to eight months, I was even in a place to like have those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Like initiate those conversations. Other people could have them for with me, right? But I wasn't even in that headspace to consider that. It was more like, okay, okay I know, like, I know if I, if I go to sleep, like this, this is this is kind of like how concrete my brain processing was. Like, okay, wake up, go to school, take a nap, and then I knew that I dreaded the night because I would have to go to bed at eight. And I wouldn't fall asleep by 10 until 10 ish and then wake up and do it all over again. Yeah. And like, that was like my process for the first few months of like, just, just existing. Right. As my brain was healing. And then I was able to have some of that kind is of, there, go ahead. I was just going to ask it. Is there anything specific that helped you start falling asleep better over time? Um, I think there was, a low dose of melatonin that helped. And then a lot of it was once I could get some of that higher order thinking back online. I mean, in therapy, we call it like metacognition, right? Thinking about our thinking mm -hmm. and start, start really thinking of, okay, like this, this process of my thoughts racing is not helping me fall asleep. This anger is not helping me fall asleep. How do I let it go? How do I just maybe not notice it, right? And start and start having yeah. having those conversations internally and engaging with that material. That's very much what therapy is like, right? Like the therapist acts as that voice to start those internal conversations on some level. And yeah. and I wasn't in I wasn't in therapy at that time. So it was literally, and I think that's where a lot of that grit and just perseverance came in of like, I need to sleep. Like no human can escape that, right? Well, on the long term, and especially coming on the heels of a traumatic brain injury. So either I figured this out or it's, I don't know what the next step is, right? So it was yeah. kind of the back was against the wall. Yeah. Um. So let's fast forward to now. You're you're doing mm -hmm. therapy therapy for other people you're you're helping others mm -hmm. on your website uh for revitalized health you have four different specialties mm -hmm. for therapies that you use um acceptance acceptance and commitment therapy cognitive behavioral therapy cognitive processing therapy and then the fourth is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy yeah can we walk through those and sure. can you kind of explain what those are yeah Definitely. So starting with uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT for short, um, really the precipice of ACT is how do we create psychological flexibility in terms of our thought processes, in terms of our mood, how we navigate life. It's underpinned by a few different pieces. They call it a hexaflex and ACT. And so it's values, committed action, present moment focus, which is very similar to mindfulness, 
diffusion and values. Um, wait, I'm sorry. Values, committed action, present moment, focus, um, committed action, present moment, diffusion, and then sense of self, um, which is like our self-esteem, our identity. How is that formed? Are there pieces of that that we would like to change? Cognitive behavioral therapy is a very prominent therapy in today's society started in the 60s yeah. and act is actually a derivative of cbt so cognitive behavioral therapy looks at cognitions as well as behavior and how do those things go together how do we influence our ability to think around things um also looking at cognitive distortions right so all or nothing thinking black black and white thinking is another way to look at that over generalization um there's a few different there's a there's a number of other cognitive distortions that can kind of creep in and yeah. how do we make our thoughts more accurate right because oftentimes our thoughts maybe we might we, we might like to think that they're accurate but they may be a little inaccurate and how do we how do we tune fine-tune them right um cognitive processing yeah. therapy cpt um was formed from cbt2 but it's only for post-traumatic stress disorder so people who have been diagnosed or have that diagnosis um the researcher on that for cpt is it needs to be full ptsd um threshold okay and that just looks at restructuring inaccurate thoughts specifically related to trauma um and then also bringing in those cognitive distortions um and how they how they influence our inaccuracies of our thoughts and just how we navigate life eye movement desensitization and reprocessing started in the late 80s by Dr. Shapiro, um, and it was actually uh, started as eye movement and desensitization. There was no reprocessing, and then in time, it just expanded to have the R, the reprocessing at the end. Essentially, okay. how EMDR works is by engaging both hemispheres of the brain, bilateral stimulation, so tapping eye movements, uh, watching watching something on the screen going back and forth, and making sure you're crossing that that midbrain. And that essentially jumpstarts what's called our adaptive information processing system inside of our body, which all of us have. And, and an easy way to think of that is if you cut your hand while you're cutting carrots, right, in a couple days, if you don't need stitches, what tends to happen to that cut? Get a scab, right? Right, right. And then let's say you were cutting chicken and a piece of bacteria got in there and it was infected. How would you know? I it would get inflamed. You'd see pink mm -hmm. inflammation around it. You might see like white, um, pussy, yeah, infection, tender, hot, infection. Right? Yeah. and yeah. and that's a symptom of the infection, right? So how yeah. the AIP adaptive information processing system looks at trauma is that our body stores those traumatic experiences, and the trauma doesn't have to be PTSD. It could be, you know being shamed in a work meeting, right, or whatever it is. And sh our nervous system stores those, those experiences, images, thoughts, emotions, sensations, right, temperature. And because of that stored toxicity of that trauma, we then have symptoms, just like if that cut your hand and there was bacteria in there and now you have an infection, right? So maybe yeah. we have suicidal thoughts, maybe we have um, trauma symptoms, right? Hypervigilance, whatever it is, or you know, inability to think about it, think 
or I'm sorry, inability to uh, navigate relationships in a healthy manner, whatever it is, right? And then that bilateral stimulation starts that body's natural healing process, just like if you were cutting that carrot and you cut your hand and it's healing okay, and it starts healing it through to integrate that trauma properly into your nervous system, and then we see the symptoms typically fade away. Okay. How many sessions are usually involved in that? So that is a great question. There's probably no set. It just depends on the person, what they're bringing in. Is it a one-time shame incident at work, right? Or is it chronic, prolonged childhood trauma that has now influenced complex post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, right? So it's not, there's not like a set protocol. Um, It's really when, when have we established regulation in the nervous system and integrated those memories are are kind of when when the emdr therapy sessions are done okay i actually just heard about edmr it was a few weeks ago that i really came across it i was talking with a a friend a couple friends and Mm -hmm. um yeah it sounds very interesting Um, yeah and it can and EMDR, I mean, there's a lot of different areas where it's showing efficacy, self-harm, suicidal ideation, um, depression, anxiety, panic, substance use, as well as grief and loss. But it's just pretty interesting how we're, we're kind of seeing EMDR's research and, and also some of its um, utilization, right, being used to help yeah. people heal. Yeah, is it? So I know it was created in the 80s but is it is it becoming more popular lately like i've heard about the other therapies like especially cognitive behavioral therapy um, Mm -hmm. that's very well known and i think it's i think it's becoming more what do i want to say i think it's becoming a lot more mainstream now in the past especially like five ten years it's becoming much okay. more mainstream. And I think it's also gaining traction because what you're seeing is it being used for many different things, right? Like we know CBT yeah. is effective for anxiety, depression, addiction, um, even even trauma-focused CBT and its derivatives. And now what we're seeing is, is EMDR not just being effective for trauma, PTSD, complex PTSD, but also depression, anxiety, right? Addiction, self-harm. Yeah. So we're starting to see that utilization expanding. I think there's a lot of a lot of traction showing up now. Okay. Is that usually uh, paired with other therapies, or is it mm. a standalone therapy? Usually, that's a fabulous question. It will depend on the client. Um, it will also depend on the age of the client. Meaning, like typically, children and adolescents process through trauma a lot faster than adults and that's because they have a lot less lived experience they have a lot less we call them in terms of uh therapy for emdr we have they have a lot less like feeder memories that are influencing the, the reprocessing that's coming up and there are a lot of different modalities that are being integrated into emdr so some of the big ones are um, somatic experiencing, internal family systems, IFS, and then um, sensory motor are being kind of integrated into EMDR and to really hit EMDR treats 
trauma from the bottom up versus talk therapy usually works from the top down. And sensory motor, IFS, somatic experiencing, SE, all work from the bottom up. So yeah. we use them not interchange in interchangeably, but we use them while we're doing EMDR in terms of maybe interweaves or working with different ego ego state parts, so different parts of ourselves, right? We have a lot of different ego states are ego states easily explained are we have different parts of ourselves that make us make us up of who we are, right? We have a child part, we have an adolescent part, maybe a business part, maybe a you know, professional part, brother, sister, right? Child. And we have all these different parts that influence who we are, how we navigate the world. And sometimes we have parts that are maybe, maybe formed during trauma or stress, right? Maybe we have a protector part that kind of takes over, takes control, a deviant adolescent, wounded child part whatever it might be, or maybe, maybe there are guilt parts of ourselves, right? And we can work through ego states to increase communication between those parts and, and not create uniformity, but just create integration. And then that helps reprocessing in and of itself. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've worked at a psychiatric hospital for a while too. Mm -hmm. Um, what has working in a psychiatric hospital taught you about the human condition? Mm. I don't know if it's just been the psych psychiatric hospital, my own recovery and also private practice, but I think the human spirit is so strong when you look at what people can endure and hold and then still show up and, and spread kindness and love and joy in this world. Um, I think it's also showed too that it only takes one or two big stressors to really tip us into having an increase in mental health symptoms, addiction challenges, whatever it might be. And yeah, you know, people are often thought like, oh, like though like people who are sent to hospitals especially psych hospitals are different there's not there's not a lot of differences we're all human beings we all bleed the same yeah what do you feel like uh what's something that you'd like the general public to understand better about psychiatric hospitals and psychiatric care mhm again i think it comes back to that we don't know what somebody's experiencing internally, but they get a lot of, there's a lot of judgment around like, oh, that person's homeless, that, you know, whatever it is, or even that mental illness leads to you know, violent crime, which the research shows it's a very small percentage. Uh, so I think just, just those pieces as well as, you know, if you or your, one of your family members was ill, how would you want them to be treated? Right? What kind of compassion yeah. would you want them to see? Empathy, support. Those are all kind of the, the take-home pieces. Yeah. When I was uh, probably about 19 years old, I was working as a certified nursing assistant, and I did spend a few shifts on a psychiatric ward. Um, it wasn't anything I did full-time, but I found it kind of 
men if pretty mentally draining even those few shifts how do you maintain your own mental health when you're in that environment all the time mhm the word that sticks out to me is values right so okay. um if we can stay aligned with our values or our mission right whatever that is in life we can endure yeah. a lot and one of my values is working in supporting and helping people achieve and maintain recovery. So for me, it's work. Don't get me wrong. And it's also beautiful to see people grow, to see people heal and get to points in their recovery where they're able to leave the hospital or do things yeah. even in private practice that they weren't able to do, right? To, to say, oh, wow, like I have, I have a romantic relationship starting. Right, even though, even though I have trust challenges, like that's also growth. Have you noticed any common threads in people that improve versus people that kind of go deeper into their mental disorders? I think anecdotally, not like evidence-based research. Yeah, that there has to be a commitment to the process. It's not a. This isn't a quick. This isn't a quick. You know three months of therapy usually it takes time to to change those neural patterns form form new neural patterns and one of the analogies i use a lot of is if you've ever walked through snow in the woods like eight 12 inches of snow even with snowshoes is the first time you walk through the snow is it easy or difficult yeah, pretty difficult right even even the first few passes especially if you're not in snowshoes and that is essentially, well, let me back up. Then if you go on that path 20 or 30 times, what happens to that path? Gets uh, patted down and easier right. to walk on. Mm -hmm. And that's how our neural, neural networks work too, right? So sometimes I think yeah. people want to heal, which is great, but they also can't do it quick as quickly as, as they want. And that commitment to the process is, is so important. Because some of these neural patterns, these neural networks have been firing for decades, right? And three months of trying to change them is not going to be, the teeter-totter is still way out of balance, right? Yeah. With regard to traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. um, it appears that there could be some potential for like marijuana to positively impact those with TBI. Um, have you observed anything? Uh, with patients that potentially use marijuana i know colorado has mm -hmm. legal recreational and medicinal so have you noticed anything with people that use versus don't use and have gone through that not anything where i can say there's a correlation that i could draw okay. um yeah not not anything in terms of a correlation i've seen you know, patterns of maybe where marijuana use becomes more of a avoidance tool or more of a numbing tool mm -hmm. to address challenges. Um, I've definitely seen it help in terms of chronic pain, in terms of um, stimulating eating in in those facets, but nothing that I can say, you know, TBIs and marijuana use go hand in hand or something on that level. 
and I'm also not fam- too familiar yeah. with the with the research on specific TBIs and marijuana use being used adjacently or adjunctly. Yeah, one that I saw, it was from 2014, and it basically did a toxicology on people mm-hmm. who had a traumatic brain injury. So it, it appears that they were testing if they were marijuana users leading up to the traumatic event, mm. and they found a lower mortality in the people who were marijuana users prior, um, which I mm. found very interesting. I didn't know that before. Yeah, but, I don't. And that was when they sustained the TBI? Yeah, so when they sustained it, they did a toxicology at that time, and uh, mm. there seemed to be a correlation uh, with people that have had it and a lower risk of mortality. Mm. So it was interesting. But I'm yeah. happy you touched on I'm happy you touched on the potential negative side, you mm-hmm. know, being used as a crutch or avoidance tool because I'm I'm pro marijuana in the sense I think it's you know, I think it's been demonized in the past and I think it's a mm-hmm. could be a positive drug, but it can also be a negative drug. Um it has its positives and negatives for sure. Yeah. I mean most most things in life that we do all do, right? Even working out. I think that yeah. can that can also lead to challenges in ability to attend work shifts. I mean, and we're talking like excessive use, right? Or or excessive yeah. amounts of working out when you spend three, four hours a day in the gym, unless maybe maybe you are a bodybuilder, right? And then maybe that makes sense. But yeah. if you also have a family and or or people you care about that care about you and you also have a job and right, that that detracts and there might be more going on there yeah. than meets the eye. But yeah, I think yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I know that there's new research coming out around MDMA, around uh, psych, um, hallucinogenics. And, and I, I think it'll be really interesting to see where that, where that research goes, even like ketamine, um, you know, especially long-term yeah. research. Cause I've seen a lot of people feel better when they're using it, but it is when sometimes when they're not using it, they start to drift back. Yeah. So it'll just be interesting to see what more of those longitudinal studies say and being open to whatever the research kind of indicates, right? Yeah, psilocybin specifically seems like it could have real potential for Mm -hmm. a lot of mental disorders and traumatic brain injury because it seems like there's some kind of something going on with your neurons when when you're on that. And it could, uh, like I've taken psilocybin and if I have an intention, Mm-hmm. I find taking psilocybin, you know, doing a low dose or even a higher dose, it, it's been very effective with me committing to something. You know, if mm-hmm. I want to make a change in my life and I go into a session with psilocybin and I put that intention into that session, it, I feel like it has very positive changes. For me, like when I was quitting alcohol, I used psilocybin to kind of mm. affirm what I wanted to do. And I do feel like that helped. I mean, I was doing other things too. So I can't say, oh, psilocybin is the reason I don't drink anymore. Right. But it definitely helped um, make my, be more steady in what I wanted, be mm-hmm. more resolved. So. Yeah. I, and, and I think, I think the culture around some of those drugs is shifting. Although slowly, yeah, 
I yeah. mean, it's like turning, it's like turning a massive boat in a, in a sea storm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I think I don't, I mean, I can't predict legislation where it will go, but I mean, we've seen a, a number of States already adopt marijuana. Right. And yeah. Same time. Well, we'll in Colorado, tell. you're in a state that you're in a state that's kind of ahead of the game in that sense. I think mm-hmm. you guys, you decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms, I believe, like within the last few years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Which is, I think a step in the right direction. Like there's mm-hmm. certain drugs that just their risk of harm is lower. And I think we should recognize that not all drugs are the same. Yeah. And other countries have already done it, like Portugal and stuff. So Yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see what their what the research you know comes out of their their countries. What does that say, right? Yeah. Do they see an uptick yeah, in? Very interesting you know, to see. You know, violent crime. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. With uh, medicinal mushrooms, not uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Um, mm-hmm. one mushroom that comes to mind is lion's mane. Um, mm-hmm. it has been shown to. Uh, have the ability to induce nerve growth factor synthesis in nerve cells. Have mm. you seen it used um, in patients? Or I, I know this probably wouldn't be something that's prescribed by anybody, but maybe some patients have used mm-hmm. uh, mushroom supplements alongside of anything. Have you heard of anything like that? I've heard of it. I, to be completely honest, I have not seen it used. I've heard okay. people who have used it. Um, I can't speak to whether it's been you know, extremely eye-opening or you know, dramatic shift or been also also on the other side or been harmful, right? So yeah. I, just, I just don't have enough data to be able to, okay. to, to speak to that. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I find schizophrenia and psychosis very interesting. Um, and speaking of marijuana, there's been some link to potentially uh, schizophrenia being induced by marijuana use earlier, like Especially earlier in your brain development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you dive into what you've observed with people with schizophrenia and psychosis? Like, what are these disorders? Um, mm-hmm. Were there known causes that led to um, the symptoms of it, and does the severity vary? Yeah. So, I think when you when you think of like schizophrenia, when you think of psychosis, schizoaffective disorder, right? Those are all very they can all present very differently. So, in terms of schizophrenia, right? Like, there's usually the presence of auditory hallucin or some form of hallucinations and those are positive symptoms so auditory hallucinations um visual hallucinations olfactory tactile hallucinations um and there's one more that i'm just not remembering offhand um and i think it's taste but there's a specific name for it um and then there's the delusional components um as well to the positive symptoms and then we have the negative symptoms which are like the isolation the decrease in an expressive affect inability to read affect shifts in another person right almost like that attunement in a conversation 
right? Like if you just crossed your arms, I'd be like, oh, is everything all right? Sometimes that's lacking. It's not just in schizophrenia, but also TBIs or other mental health challenges. Um, but in terms of schizophrenia, that's one of them. And there are a few a few more that we that we watch for. Um, let's see, isolation, um, negative emotion, affect, um, just the inability to experience pleasure. Like there are many different forms of things that can show up. So in terms of severity, I think there's a huge difference in severity for somebody who has maybe had a first psychotic break and they could have a psychotic break but not meet schizophrenia threshold in the in the yeah. DSM five TR um or the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Mental Illness. So those, and that's why I mean they're different, but for somebody who has a psychotic break and then they're like, okay, like maybe I need like a dose of medications, you know, and they might stay on a low dose of medications. That might be all that, that they experience versus somebody who maybe has challenges staying on medications, um, can see an increase or uptick in symptoms if they're not on them. And I actually read this really interesting book. Um, on EMDR for schizophrenia and psychosis by Paul Miller. And he is looking at using EMDR to target um, psychotic material, especially if there are sometimes, sometimes trauma earlier in life or traumatic experiences can predate onset of certain psychotic symptoms and targeting those with EMDR has been shown to have some efficacy. So I'm that's that's one of the areas that I'm really curious in. Another more powerful therapy as well. It's a derivative of CBT, but it's cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis specifically. And that is instead of targeting instead of targeting the symptoms, we target the themes of the symptoms. So maybe a lot of them are persecutory, so maybe the person feels unsafe. A lot of maybe some of them are related to, you know, not being worthy, not being lovable and targeting those themes and then seeing some of those symptoms decrease. But also the other part of therapy and treatment is also seeing an increase in functioning. Right. So if there's, for example, like somebody who still has auditory hallucinations but they're able to maintain a full-time job and like function and meet their needs. Like how much of that, how much of that do we want to disappear? Right. Maybe if they, if the client wants it to go away, right. Then that would be one thing. But if their functioning levels also here, like have we also reached maximum efficacy? So it it just depends. And go ahead. You mentioned positive and negative symptoms, um, Mm -hmm. but it didn't sound like, you were talking about good and bad symptoms. Can mm-hmm. you dive into what you mean by positive and negative there? Yeah, so pos- positive symptoms are like ones that would be like in addition to what what somebody, like if somebody was at neutral, right, didn't have any symptoms, and there are positive ones, so essentially added to whatever that person is experiencing in life. So they're having hallucinations, okay. right? They're having delusions. Those would be considered positives. Um, and then the negative okay. ones would be like going, 
going backward and not having them, right? So negative okay. or emotional affect, right? Decrease in pleasure from once pleasurable activities or decrease in ability to communicate, right? Poverty of speech, things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any misconceptions about schizophrenia and psychosis that you come across a lot? Hmm. I would still lump it underneath. Like we don't know what's going on in that person's life. And sometimes, sometimes psychotic people have psychotic breaks or episodes because it's substance induced. Right. So we don't, we need to be very careful on how we, how we assess and treat people. And I think there's also this beautiful thing that we see with a person's functioning in time that even people who have you know, the diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder can still live very meaningful lives, contribute to society in ways that sometimes people who do not have those illnesses can in terms of like creativity, right? In terms of empathy, right? There's there's a TED Talk, and I forget the person's name. Um, I believe she is the either the chair of their psychology program or psychiatric program at USC um, in California and she has schizophrenia. Right. Okay. And it's like, you can still like live your life in this world, even with that label that people have imposed on you. Right. And again, it comes to that recovery mindset, that grit, that consistency. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh the in general people probably look at schizophrenia as mostly just completely debilitating, you know. Mm-hmm. Um that's that would be my view not having too much insight prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um I would think of it as pretty debilitating and I think a lot of people would assume that's the case generally with schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think there's a lot of factors that come into play in terms of this what influences the severity of the illness, right? How how good is the treatment that they're receiving? What's it, what level of support system do they have, if at all? Do they have housing, right? All those factors come into play. Are they connected to community yeah. services and organizations? Um, because it can very much feel like you are you are on an island when, in fact, there are a lot of other people in this society, just the U.S. alone, that experience those symptoms, or or maybe a variation of those symptoms, right? Yeah. When you have, when somebody has psychosis or schizophrenia, they go through mm-hmm. therapy, they take medication potentially. Is there a point that they can fully get over that, like get past it, or is it forever a part of their lives in some way or another? It's mm, a good question. And one that's one of the reasons I love that EMDR book for psychosis that I mentioned by Paul Miller. So he he referenced a lot of early research in that book um, back from like the 1890s and 19 early 1900s, um, when when schizophrenia was referred to as the schizophrenias, and it, and it was divided, and I believe it was five different categories into almost types of dissociation, and Fast forward to when this book came out, the psychiatrist, Dr. Miller, is looking at 
doing EMDR with some of these folks that have um, symptoms of psychosis and seeing reductions in symptoms or the person's ability to reduce dosages of medications for like antipsychotics or being able to remove antipsychotics entirely. So I don't know for certain. I've seen most people have to be on some sort of medication, psychotropic medication to support recovery. But again, research is coming out yearly, right? Interventions are changing. Like we don't yeah. we don't know what that will look like in 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially the research around like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, right? We're able to yeah. like be able to stop neurodegenerative disorders or implant neurons, right? And maybe if schizophrenia is related to, you know, decrease in dopaminergic neurons, can we then implant neurons, right? Like research is shifting so quickly. And I think it'll be really yeah. an incredible thing to be on that forefront. Definitely. Um in your experience, like what you've observed, what are the typical reasons that people have schizophrenia or psychosis? Mm. Is it mm. is it off is it typically drug induced or are there other, you know, is it stress induced or what do you typically see? I think there can be a variety of symptoms or a variety of kind of precipitating events. Trauma is one. Um, stress. Epigenetics plays some role. We don't know exactly what, but even if it's a low role, right? Do parents or aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, especially or referring to only biological, right? Not adoptive. Um, do they have challenges yeah. with mental, mental health? disorders or illnesses um i don't know if there's like a hard and fast like this is this is the cause of it right i've seen yeah. substance use stuff come through i've also seen you know people using prolonged substances for decades or years at a time and that is also now your brain is at a point where the neurons aren't there so yeah and that and that's that can be that can be difficult too because then sometimes medications can't impact those symptoms because the brain is not not there to absorb them yeah with schizophrenia if i'm remembering right doesn't it normally manifest by your late 20s or something like that yeah yeah usually usually mid to late 20s early 30s People can have late breaks. Again, th then we're we're kind of looking at is this schizophrenia? Is this just a delusional disorder? Is this a psychotic break? Right? Because all those things are different in terms of schizophrenia. Um, yeah. So it depends on the assessment of the individual. But could it happen later in life? Yes. Has has it happened? Yes. Right. But I think those are that's kind of like when you think of like the bell curve for like standard deviations. I've been a. Uh reading a bit about uh shadow personality traits you know carl mm -hmm. Jung, um kind of was the first person to really go into that and you know they're i don't know enough to like speak competently about it but i what i understand is it's 
personality traits that are not part of our ideal ego that we kind mm-hmm. of repress, um, but that are still present in some way or another. So maybe we we want to be very generous, but there there's a shadow part of our personality that is opposite of that, who's mm-hmm. very, um, you know, very like selfish and and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, do you have any opinion about how shadow personality influences mental health over the lifespan? It's a good question. I'm. I mean, I know Carl Jung, and I've heard of I've heard of the shadow the shadow work before. I'm not that familiar with it. In terms of what I mentioned with EMDR, with those ego states. Right? And I think there might be some overlap there of yeah. do we have parts of ourselves that maybe only come out at certain times or influence you know, dynamics or interpersonal interactions or how we show up to certain settings or work, right? And sometimes those, in ego states, we call them apparently normal parts, and then we also have emotional parts. And some of those emotional parts are the ones that are typically created like during during moments of strong emotion or stress and so trauma um so maybe there's a part of you know i'm a victim and like maybe always taking that role right but we also know from from research is that through emdr and through ego state work that we can start to shift those that awareness of parts, increase the awareness of it and increase the communication of all those parts together so that we form unity or I'm sorry, we form integration, not unity. Okay. How do you help clients get over the shame and guilt that often comes along with mental disorders and mental challenges? I mean, I usually target it with EMDR. Okay. So, so EMDR will not reprocess anything that is functional, right? So going back to the, when I mentioned like EMDR for grief and loss has been shown to help be effective with not, not the stages of grief and loss specifically, but are there pieces of that kind of, let's say loss experience where, it's like, I should have noticed that. I should have picked up on that. I should have been there, right? And that leads to guilt, Yeah. right? And EMDR can help process the dysfunctional pieces of shame, of guilt, right? Will there always maybe be some like longing or loss? Yeah, there might be, right? And that's fairly human. They wouldn't, we wouldn't have an emotional response to whatever whatever loss experience we went through if if that person that pet right didn't mean something to us and that's part of being human it's part of life is feeling shitty emotions sometimes yeah we can't just always have good emotions yeah when when you're dealing with grief and loss i think one of the hesitations i could imagine people have is Sure, I want to be healthier about the grief and loss, but I don't want to I don't want the memory of the person or pet that I lost to fade at all. Mm-hmm. Um how do you reassure people that that yeah. won't happen? 
Sure. So, so EMDR will not change a memory. It'll change your relationship to the memory because those dysfunctional pieces okay. will, will fade or be integrated. Okay. So, okay. and that's why grief and loss, and when you're doing EMDR work with grief and loss, it's, you can't rush somebody through the five stages of grief and loss. It's just not yeah, humanly possible. Not. And we also operate on a yearly system. So anniversaries show up, right? Memories show up. Yeah. Facebook is great for reminding us on memories. Sometimes it's yeah. really shitty. And, you know, other things too, Amazon, Amazon photos, Google, right? They all remind, have reminders and, and that's also just a part of grief and loss. Yeah, definitely. Um, what have you noticed about the COVID-19 pandemic? How has that affected um, mental health and, and the services for mental health? Mm-hmm. So I think one big uptick in mental health or people seeking services, at least for mental health. I think two, one of the positives that came out of COVID was this access to care via telehealth or, or online therapy, virtual therapy. Um, yeah. I think it really plowed down people's boundaries in terms of access to care. Yeah. Rural areas, as long as you have a 5G network or Wi-Fi that can do a video chat, now you can do talk therapy, you can do EMDR, right? All virtual. And that is yeah. so powerful. So those are some of the, the pieces that I've seen. I haven't worked too much with like long COVID or anything of that nature. Yeah. How do you feel like people can better support other people who are dealing with mental illness, PTSD, or traumatic mm -hmm. brain injuries in our community at large? I think one awareness to not judging. Like we don't know what people are dealing with. We all have our internal shit that we yeah. hold and it all impacts us on different days, different dates, different differently. You can't force somebody to go to therapy. But just letting people know that there's people out there like professionals that you can, you know, chat with. And it doesn't have to be yeah. a worst. You know, there's there's definitely people that kind of kind of want therapy but don't know what they want in terms of therapy or don't or know that they want to heal but aren't ready to heal that's part of that therapist or counselor or psychotherapist really meeting that person where they're at and just yeah. saying okay i'll support you with this right now okay what do you feel are some things people can implement in their daily lives to improve their mental health and potentially prevent getting, you know, developing a disorder or, or mm -hmm. getting further into a disorder if they already maybe have something. Yeah. I mean, self-care is talked a lot, talked about a lot in our culture, making sure we're doing small things for ourselves, aligning things to, to fit with our values, right? When we're not, when we're often not functioning in our values, that that's where we create a lot of stress in our lives. So noticing that awareness, right, yeah. is what I'm is what I'm about to do going to move me to towards or away from my values? It's a big question. Yeah, right. 
um, okay. finding finding avenues or releases for stress, gym, hobbies, gardening, walks, right? Chats with family if you're kind of more more or not able to travel or going back to COVID, right? Like if you're if you're you know if there are upticks in COVID and you still want to see family, having connection with other people is huge, right? Plants have been shown to help us regulate our nervous system, right? So I don't, there's a lot of plants in this office and I love it. Um, so there's, there's many different things. Everyone's going to be a little different. For me, mine is time outside, time in nature, right? Scents, so like fresh yeah. rain, cut grass, stuff like that. Yeah. What's something that you would like to see change uh, in the mental health field? Hmm. I think on a larger level, I think most people in the mental health field would agree that most people are underpaid. So from a from a systemic level, right? Because I think that also influences how therapists show up, right? Whether people do certain jobs, even even private practice versus like community mental health. It's like why why yeah. take a job where I can't support myself or my family, right? Yeah. Um. So I think some of those, those are, but those are like bureaucratic systemic pieces. Awareness is going to be huge. Especially awareness around, and this is also linking what I just said. My other point too is like, how does, how does Medicaid reimburse? Cause that's a huge population and Medicaid yeah. also sometimes has a very low reimbursement rate and that gets into a political issue. I'm not getting into that, but, um, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people that do need services that are at that level, and and it seems like our society kind of pendulates in terms of mental health services are supported and then they're not, or it takes a huge a huge incident to push us to find funds, and then a huge incident or lack of incident to move us back on the pendulum, right, and just the system we work in. Um, otherwise, I think just the general awareness around like there are people out there that can chat, that a lot of what we talk about is confidential without if, you know, there are very few parameters that we have to disclose information outside of confidentiality. So most of it's all protected. Okay. What would you say to somebody who wants help with their mental health but they see you know the price of therapy is an a huge obstacle and something that they can't overcome in their current lives maybe they're making minimum wage and barely mm -hmm. getting by as it is um that's a really good question so a i would look at what kind of health insurance do you have can you find a, mm -hmm. a therapist through there if you're wanting to private pay right Look, I would say looking at it as even even using insurance too, but as an investment in yourself, right? Grow self growth. Um, two, looking at your support network, could they pay for things if that's something that you would want, right? Yeah. Um, there are also, and it's I don't I don't know the names of a lot of the programs, but. There are programs, I know that in Denver, but I'm sure that there are other nonprofit programs throughout the country. I can't speak for other countries, but 
throughout the state that will also reimburse a therapist, like if you get into their program for therapy services. So it'd be essentially private pay, but the organization would pay. So doing some research okay. and trying to find those, right, is crucial to access okay. to care. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And that. I think um, most therapists also have a few sliding scale spots. So it's kind of like, what can you pay? I mean, um, sometimes they're full, sometimes they're not. If you can wait, yeah. right? Those are things to ask therapists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you. Um, <laughs> what are some books or resources that you would recommend for people? interested in mental health i know you already mentioned the edmr book by uh paul miller yeah yeah so emdr for schizophrenia by paul miller um there's dr shapiro's book on emdr too trauma I mean, there's a lot of different trauma and recovery books from bessel van der Kolk, how the body keeps the score to peter levine awakening the tiger within um judith Harmon. it's more it's more it's a pretty dense book, but it's trauma and recovery. Uh, in terms of just general mental health books, I don't have a lot that I just have on hand. But I, I know that I've seen just from simple Google searches that you can put in, you know, mental health for anxiety books or depression, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and a, a plethora of resources will show up. So I would definitely lean into okay. Google. Okay. Um, I saw that you are a reader. So do you have any books that you just recommend that aren't necessarily related to mental health that you just very much enjoy? Yeah. Um, not, not related to mental health. Um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Um, okay. I've really, it can be, it can be a pretty harsh book, but I've really enjoyed David Goggins material on can't hurt me, his book. Um, and okay. then he has another book that just yeah. came out. I can't remember the name of it. Also, Jocko Williams has some self discipline books, um, that I've really kind of yeah. sat well with. Um, yeah. Trying to think. Yeah. I just finished Paul Miller's book last week. So, and right now I'm reading um, Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection by Deb Donna. So, that's one of those pieces that can be intertwined with EMDR to help regulate the nervous system, especially for people who have okay. experienced trauma. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Then it's been amazing talking to you. Um, before we go, can you tell people how they can reach you if they want to work with you or if they want to find out more about the services you offer or and anything else that you'd like to share? For sure. So um, therapy is regulated by state lines in the U.S. So um, if you're in Colorado, we can definitely do virtual or in-person therapy. Um, outside of that, it could be coaching. Um, give me a call, 720-295-6703 website is www.revitalizedmentalhealth.com and submit a form on there otherwise instagram at revitalize underscore mental health awesome yeah thank you so much daniel it was great talking with you today
yeah, you too. You too. Thank you so much for allowing me some space to share my story and a little bit about what we do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If you enjoyed the episode, if you share it, that always helps out a lot. And you can find me on social media, TikTok and Instagram at Thoughtfully Mindless and Twitter or X at TM Convos. I'd love to hear what you think of the episode, so please feel free to reach out. Until next time. Thank you.